Welcome to today's reading of the Councilless Nonpareil for Thursday, January 18th, 2024. I'm your reader, John McPartland. Here's your first story. Trump dominates. Republicans dash DeSantis caucus expectations. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' candidacy rolled into Iowa last spring as it had been designed by a committee of drooling Republican officials in a GOP-leaning state. A Navy veteran, DeSantis had been whisked into a second term and had a fresh set of conservative measures tucked under his arm, an ambitious $100 million political machine built with Iowa in mind. At first blush, it seemed to be many to be the key to picking up from former President Trump's uh, lock on the Hawkeye State Republican base. The former Yale baseball player would touch them all in Iowa in the months to come, collecting the GOP beloved governor's endorsement and mimicking senior Senator Chuck Grassley's annual 99-county pilgrimage, all with his charming young family in tow. Yet, even after his team in Iowa knocked on more than $940,000 doors, and DeSantis himself headlined nearly 140 events, many Iowans simply never warmed up to the sometimes dour and lecturing cultural warrior. He's not that charismatic, but I figured I would see him, said Steve Kessler, a Nikki Haley supporter at DeSantis's last campaign stop in Cedar Rapids. From the sweltering August heat of Iowa State Fair, campaign stops to the sub-zero trudge Iowans made to their neighborhood caucuses Monday, DeSantis was never able to dip deep enough into that well of GOP voters who liked Trump but were open to an alternative. The alternative vote split roughly in two, leaving Republican Iowa firmly in Trump's hands as the first ballots of the 2024 presidential contest were cast. No one can compete with not only the record of a better economy during his term, but an American first message that's much stronger than anyone else's, said Randy Vandenberg of GOP Heavy Rock Rapids, who said he would have considered supporting DeSantis were Trump not a candidate. Even in this small sampling of voters, roughly 110,000 of Iowa's 2.2 million people, practically a focus group on the national scale, Trump proved himself to be a daunting hurdle for his party's rivals in a state he'd already, in a state he'd already carried twice. Many of the thousands who traveled snow-packed roads in below-zero Fahrenheit temperatures to register those opinions in the company of their neighbors may have defaulted to Trump in the absence of a next-generation candidate with a look of a winner. If there was someone that felt like he or she could be a winner, it might have kept Trump below 50%, said Gentry Collins, a Republican strategist who ran Mitt Romney's 2008 second-place caucus campaign. So now there's not a candidate who looks like a winner. Former United Nations Ambassador Haley said she's the one, having finished in the third place narrowly behind DeSantis on Monday. She sits within striking distance of Trump in recent polls ahead of the January 23rd New Hampshire primary, though it's unclear what impact her third-place finish in Iowa will have. Despite his commanding win in Iowa, the contest exposed vulner- vulnerabilities for Trump that Haley suggested she could exploit in what she declared Monday night had become a two-candidate race in New Hampshire, one that doesn't include DeSantis. 
Trump does not thrive among suburban voters, a group that cost him nationally in 2020. Only about a third of Iowa Republicans in the suburbs support the former president, according to the Associated Press. VoteCast, a survey conducted, conducted by AP NORC, Center for Public Affairs, research of more than 1,500 voters who said they planned to participate in Monday's Republican caucuses. Haley, by contrast, beat Trump in Johnson County, a burgeoning tract of homes and businesses along Interstate 80 south of Cedar Rapids. She also finished more competitively behind Trump Monday in Dallas County, a suburban stretch that's been among the five fastest-growing counties in the U.S., and which has more in common with New Hampshire's suburban landscape than vast swaths of Iowa farmland. I just think we need a younger person, said someone with grit. Nancy Wildanger, a 58-year-old Republican accountant who turned out in Sunday's bone-chilling cold to an attendant event Haley hosted in Iowa City, the epicenter of Johnson County, Iowa's most Democratic-performing enclave. It's concerning to me that someone as old as Trump should be running our country, and I believe she has a better chance of beating President Joe Biden. The question for DeSantis, after the more than $100 million he spent, roughly $4,200 per vote in Iowa, and his stated expectation he would win after Governor Kim Reynolds' endorsement in November, is where does he turn now? Immediately, he headed for South Carolina for a Tuesday event aimed at planting a flag in Hades, Haley's territory. But the bigger question is, how does his campaign, low on cash, survive until the South Carolina primary, which remained over a month away, especially given Trump's relatively easy fundraising and donors who had waited to see strength from Haley to begin coming off the fence? The primary math still favors the former president, just as it did in 2016, when he did not have to win a majority of votes in consecutive contests, just edge his closest rival and advance. While nearly half of the voters on Monday were looking for someone besides Trump, the former president could easily claim a majority of support in this increasingly conservative state, where Republicans hold all but one statewide elected office, both houses of the legislature, in each of six seats in Congress. As Iowans know better than most, first impressions matter. And with Democrats moving Iowa back on their primary calendar after a counting fiasco marred their own caucuses four years ago, that left the first votes of 2024 solely in the hands of the Republicans, who left the district, who left the distinct first impression, even amid a turnout lower than in most years, largely due to the weather that the party belongs to Trump. No matter that nearly half of the caucus goers voted for someone else on Monday, his big win left the impression Trump desired that he still dominates the GOP. As the snow fell, along with the temperatures in the final days of the campaign, perhaps all some voters needed to see was the line outside Simpson College on the morning sun as the morning sun offered weak comfort, the hundred people waiting in 18 below zero weather to enter to see Trump's midday event, which would draw more than a thousand people to the student center. A week earlier, Trump volunteer Jackie Garlock looked around a similar hall in Mason City on a snowy Saturday, convinced Trump would win. I just look at the number of people who are here, she said, and I think, how can they all be that wrong? DeSantis edges out Haley for a distant second place.
Florida Governor Ron DeSantis finished in a distance distant second place in the Iowa Republican caucuses, narrowly edging out former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley in a tight race for second place. DeSantis polled in about 21% of the vote, hurting Haley in a close third with about 19% support. Both candidates celebrated the results as a boost to their campaigns, even as they trailed far behind former President Donald Trump, who has gathered more than half of the reported results. They threw everything but the kitchen sink at us, DeSantis told a raucous crowds of supporters gathering at his watch party at a West Des Moines hotel. They spent almost $50 million attacking us. The media was against us. They were writing our obituary months ago. They even called the election before people even got a chance to vote. The DeSantis campaign claimed the media was engaging in election interference by projecting Trump the winner before all caucuses had finished. Because I can tell you, because of your support, in spite of all that they threw at us, everyone against us, we've got our ticket punched out of Iowa, DeSantis exclaimed. We represent a chance to reverse the madness that we've seen in the country, to reverse the decline of this country, and to give this country a new birth of freedom and restoration, DeSantis continued. DeSantis noted his campaign has an uphill climb. We have a lot of work to do, he told supporters at this watch party. But I can tell you this, as the next president of the United States, I am going to get the job done for this country. I am not going to make any excuses, and I guarantee you this, I will not let you down. Haley cast her third-place finish as a victory, saying she rose from polling in the single digits to nearly taking second place. She pointed to the later contest and said she was well-positioned to take on Trump. I can safely say tonight Iowa made this Republican primary a two-person race, she told supporters in West Des Moines. Haley, who spent the weeks leading up to Iowa attacking DeSantis, quickly set her sights on Trump Monday night. She warned of the prospect of a Trump-Biden rematch and see, said Americans want to see the country taken in a different direction. Trump and Biden are both about 80 years old, she said. Trump and Biden both put our country trillions of dollars deeper in debt, and our kids will never forgive them for that. DeSantis marshaled a robust network of precinct captains and canvassers to try to boost the Florida governor to second place past Haley. Never back down, a DeSantis-aligned super PAC supporting but not directly affiliated with his campaign led the bulk of Iowa organizing for the Florida governor. PAC officials say they recruited more than 1,600 precinct captains spanning nearly every caucus site in the state. Volunteers organized rides to caucus sites, door-knocked in sub-zero temperatures, and readied to shovel driveways if needed to help get supporters DeSantis, though, could not overcome a commanding lead by former President Donald Trump to pull off a caucus night victory. Once widely viewed as the favorite to challenge Trump, DeSantis struggled to narrow the gap of the Republican presidential frontrunner, despite earning endorsements from top state Republicans, including Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds and Iowa Christian evangelical leader Bob Vanderplatz. DeSantis also noted facing a challenge from Haley, who pulled ahead of DeSantis in polling just days before Monday's high-stakes Iowa GOP caucuses that could help determine whether either candidate has a viable shot at upending troops 
Trump's path to the nomination. Haley, who came out of Iowa only two points behind DeSantis, bolstered her support with national debate performances, a flood of anti-DeSantis advertising money from a super PAC, and the endorsement and organizing power from the influential Cork Brothers network, Americans for Prosperity. Based on reported results, Haley gathered more support than DeSantis in urban and suburban areas like Scott, Blackhawk, and Story Counties, catering to moderates and independents who were not convinced by the far-right positioning of both Trump and DeSantis. Haley managed to beat Trump in Johnson County by only one vote, taking in 1,271 to Trump's 1,270, and preventing the former president from winning all 99 counties. Retired AT&T technician Dave Anderson, supporting a button for former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, describes himself as your run-of-the-mill small government, low-taxes Republican, but not a MAGA Republican, like the majority of fellow caucuses at Precinct 19 in Northwest Cedar Rapids. He chose Haley for her civility and lack of negativity in the campaign cycle, which was priority for the Cedar Rapids resident. He liked other candidates, like former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who has since dropped out. He voted Republican until 2016. He was unswayed by arguments for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, acumen in fiscal policy, or former President Donald Trump's performance in economic issues, citing a significant drop in his retirement funds under the Trump administration and a substantial boost in them under Biden administration. If DeSantis or Trump are the GOP's nominee in this election this November, he said he will vote for President Joe Biden. The stakes were high for DeSantis, who was projected to do poorly in the New Hampshire primary, which is next up on the calendar. DeSantis was polling in a distant third in the Granite State, with 5.8% support according to 538's average of recent polls. Trump was about 40% of support among likely New Hampshire voters, while Haley followed at 30%. DeSantis pinned his hopes for the Republican presidential nomination on Iowa, hoping a strong ground game and support from the state's popular Republican governor and an influential Iowa Christian evangelical leader can make up for lackluster polling and give him a boost to the rest of the primary race. DeSantis bet on retail campaigning, visiting all of Iowa's 99 counties and intense ground organization to plant the seeds for success in the Iowa caucuses. But his campaign became beset by infighting and dysfunction and left much of the tricky task of organizing support for him to the pro-DeSantis-aligned Never Back Down Super PAC. Multiple senior officials, of which resigned or were fired, following disputes over the group's attack ads against primary rival Nikki Haley and personnel moves. Reynolds, putting her political capital on the line, endorsed DeSantis in November, after initially saying she would remain neutral in the Iowa GOP caucuses. Trump criticized Reynolds for being disloyal, taking credit for her election victory in 2018, and claiming his endorsement of her for governor governor saved her campaign. Reynolds says she was proud of the endorsement, saying DeSantis' record as governor of Florida 
such as pushing against COVID-19 restrictions and mandates, expanding school choice options for parents, and restricting teachings of topics related to gender, gender and sexuality in public schools is undeniable. This is the man that can step in one day on day one and reverse the madness that we see happening from the Biden administration, Reynolds told the crowd in West Des Moines. He has the record. He has the resolve. He is a bold, principled leader. She assured DeSantis is in it for the long haul. We've got one of two tickets out of Iowa, Reynolds exclaimed. We're sending him to New Hampshire. We're sending him to South Carolina. Watch out, America. Ron DeSantis is not done. Okay, we're going to move on to a story on front page. Two brothers open Barbecue Brothers Restaurant. Dwayne Foster is quite pleased on how his new barbecue business is coming along. It's been fantastic, he told the nonpareil in a recent interview. Foster and Alonzo Lamb are the co-owners of Barbecue Brothers, located at 321 Comanche Street in Council Bluffs, the former location of Doozy's. They smoke their meats, pork, beef, and chicken on real log wood in assorted flavors, Foster said, instead of using pellet wood to smoke. It's more flavorful, flavorful, he said. They also make their pork and brisket dry rubs, which are several seasonings blended together. We make our sides, Foster said. Everything is made from scratch. The menu includes smoked meat sandwiches on brioche buns, meat by the pound, racks of ribs, smoked meat dinners, including a loaded mac and cheese meal, and sides such as Cajun coleslaw, southern green beans, and potato salad. Catering meals are also available. Foster and Lamb are not real brothers, but they do have much in common, especially their love of cooking. Both are military veterans who met while working as chefs at Omaha's Veterans Auto Administration Medical Center, and both had a vision of showcasing their cooking skills commercially. My vision started many years ago, and I executed it in 2017, Foster said. He was the first entrepreneur to sign on with a local kitchen council, a unique food startup incubator in Council Bluffs that gives members access to fully equipped commercial kitchen, business development assistance, and other resources. Meanwhile, Lamb opened a business in downtown Omaha called Cafe Zanzibar before joining up with Foster. They still serve meals out of a food truck, even though their new restaurant opened its doors in mid-December. It's open from 8, oh, excuse me, it's open from 11 a.m. to 8 p.m. Tuesdays through Saturdays. We appreciate everybody who has come here. It's been busy. This community is awesome. Perry parents want district to boost security after shooting. Several parents in an Iowa town where a deadly school shooting took place earlier this month told school officials on Monday that they want more preventive measures and transparency as the school board plans for students' return. Their comments came during a Perry school board meeting the day after the death of Principal Dan Marburger, who was critically injured in the shooting. Grace Castro criticized the school district's policy, saying that 
Lives were lost due to our lack of preventive measures. She suggested the installation of metal detectors in school entrances and a temporary remote learning option at the same time and enforcement of a clear bag policy as the absolute least you can do. Her comments echoed what many other many other parents, including some of the victims' families, have been saying on the Perry Facebook page since the district first announced its reopening plan last week. Mark Drehos also asked the board for more preventive measures, but he noted that school officials won't be able to please everybody. He said he discussed ideas with a school board member, including a single-point entry to buildings, a no-bag policy, and additional security such as hall monitors. Joseph Swanson said, I understand the solution to this problem is not an easy fix, if it even can truly be fixed, but an enhancement of security measures and mental health well-being needs to be addressed. Monday's meeting had been postponed from Sunday because of Marburger's death. His body will be escorted back to Perry on Tuesday from where it had been hospitalized in Des Moines. His family has encouraged community members to line the route to welcome back home. Funeral services are pending. The attack began in the shared middle and high school cafeteria, where students were eating breakfast before class on their first day back from winter break. The shooting continued outside the cafeteria, but it was contained at the north end of the joint middle and high school building. Sixth grader Amar Jolif, 11, was killed, and seven others were wounded, including Marburger, two other school staff members, and four students. The Iowa Department of Public Safety said Marburger acted selflessly and placed himself in harm's way in an apparent effort to protect his students. Governor Kim Reynolds ordered all flags lowered to half-staff in honor of Marburger until sunset on the day of his funeral and interment. She also encouraged people, businesses, schools, and local governments to do the same. The district's reopening plan is on hold until further notice, both because of the parent concerns about safety and security and because of Marburger's death. School officials are seeking the expertise of law enforcement and safety experts, according to a school district Facebook post on Monday. The district continues to offer counseling services. Middle and high school students' extracurricular competitions resume Tuesday Tuesday, as the district begins to ease back into its normal schedule. The last injured student was released from the hospital Sunday, so everyone who was injured in the shooting, with the exception of Marburger, has now been able to return home to Perry, according to Facebook posts of victims' family members. The 17-year-old student who opened fire died from an apparent self-inflicting inflicted gunshot. Authorities said the suspect, identified as Dylan Butler, had a pump-action shotgun and a small-caliber handgun. Authorities also found and rendered safe a rudimentary improvised explosive device in his belongings. An obituary for Butler that was published in the local newspaper Friday said Dylan loved the outdoors and had a great sense of humor. He was a picky eater who favored macaroni and cheese, pizza, and buffalo wings. The article didn't make any mention of the shooting, but said family plans a private burial. Many members of the Perry community have taken the unexpected step of offering their condolences to Butler's family since the shooting. In comments read aloud on her behalf at the school board meeting, 
Amir Joliffe's mother, Erica Joliffe, asked what Butler asked that Butler not be referred to as a school shooter or a murderer. He has a name, and it is Dylan. By not treating him as a person, allowing bullying and calling him names rather than Dylan potentially triggered the event that happened on January 4th, she said. She also called on the school district to review the events from start to finish and come up with safety proceedings to ensure that other shootings don't happen. Now we have a few opinions. First piece is uh, from Patricia Lopez. She says, Scrap the Iowa caucuses, which are out of step and stale. The Iowa caucuses have become an outdated relic, like eight-track cassettes and checkbooks. It served a valuable purpose at one time, but no longer. Donald Trump, as he has with so many things, reset the rules of the political game in Iowa, essentially turning the state into a backdrop for his brand of theatrics. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, on the other hand, played by the old rules. He dutifully visited each of Iowa's 99 counties, poured money into building the ground game that everyone said was needed, knocked on a million doors and held 136 events in the last year, fielding voter questions at every turn. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley followed a similar, if less intense, path, bouncing between Iowa and New Hampshire. Trump, he held a couple dozen rallies, including some tele-rallies, sent in a handful of surrogates, and staged photo ops like the one on Sunday where he delivered convenience store pizza to firefighters in Waukee. He did invest in a well-run ground operation, but he also rejected every debate against his challengers and took few impromptu questions from voters. For this, Trump was rewarded with a historic win on Monday night, romping to a landslide that demonstrated his demographic strength in every corner of the state and among every kind of voter. DeSantis battled his way to a distant second, a full 30 points behind Trump, with Haley close behind him in third. In a final bit of ignominy, networks called for the race before for Trump before even Iowans had even finished casting their secret votes. It wasn't supposed to be this way. The concept between the Iowa caucuses was both noble and novel when it debuted in 1972. Ordinary Iowans, farmers, factory workers, small business owners, waitresses, and sales clerks would be able to vet presidential candidates in small forms designed to push past rote talking points and stump speeches to get to something real and meaningful. No handlers, no rope lines, just candidates and prospective voters. That was before trackers and long before the internet and social media. Iowans took their responsibilities seriously, priding themselves on their ability to take a true measure of a candidate and the organization behind them. I like the history of it, said Mike Klosterman, owner of a spice ship, spice shop near the capital in Des Moines. But those days are gone. It's time has passed. Klosterman still marvels that he personally met three candidates who went on to become president. But the caucuses is increasingly out of step with how modern America lives, works, and picks its presidential candidates out of step two with how modern campaign roll. Larry Jacobs, director of the Center for the Study of Politics and Governments at the University of Minnesota, said the Iowa caucus is a political system 
that has far lived outlived even its most modest claims. The caucus, he said, has become a giant moneymaker for Iowa that also favors voters who are connected to special interests and ideological groups and extremists. Because it's held over a couple hours on a weekday evening during the bitterest part of winter, many Iowans are excluded from the process. Unlike primary voting, there are no absentee ballots, no early voting periods. Because it's a party process, there is no time off work to vote. Minnesota was also a caucus state at one point, Jacob said, but the rebellion against the lack of inclusivity became too much. When Minnesotans lined up for blocks to caucus for Barack Obama in 2008, he said, they threw up their hands at a process for democracy that just wasn't working. Minnesota went to a presidential primary after 2016. Can the caucuses ever go back to its glory days? Unlikely, social media has made candidates far too careful, and the big money needed to run modern campaigns demand that little be left to chance. The people who show up are so unlike the rest of America, the rest of the state, Jacob said. It's just not reflective. Not since 2000 has the winner of a contested Republican Iowa caucus gone on to win the presidency. Now, Trump has shown that there is no need to play by the rules in Iowa, exposing the falseness of the narrative about small-town democracy, even if he benefits from it. The Iowa caucuses, even if it survives, may never be the same. You are listening to the Council of Snoparel, uh, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, John McPartland. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, give us a call at 515-243-6833. Looks like we have one obituary today. John Carroll, May 1st, 1952 to January 6th, 2024. John Carroll, age 71, passed away on January 6, 2024 in Kingsland, Texas. He was born May 1, 1952 to the late Robert and Catherine Florchinger Carroll in Council Bluffs. John enjoyed fishing. John is survived by his daughter, Jessica Kaufman, brother Scott, Carol, sister Michelle Lambert, four grandchildren and one great-grandchild two nieces, two nephews, and a host of other family and friends. It was his wish to be cremated, and no services will be held. Now we're going to move on to a little sports. Here's hard to go got is young links learning through building the foundation. The roster is dotted with experience, but Council Bluffs Abraham Lincoln lacks a senior on a team learning the ropes this season. After a January 5th game against Bellevue West, as a team with a roster filled by seven seniors in total, head coach Chad Shaw spoke on the challenges his links face. We play a bunch of senior teams that have played a lot of basketball together, Shaw said, so we're just trying to build to make ourselves better and hopefully our future just keeps getting brighter because we haven't played our best basketball yet. I hope we haven't, he joked, so I think it's coming. But we're obviously just got to keep working. That's the big thing for us. The Lynx fell victim to a 27-2 run by the Thunderbirds in the loss. 
dropping their second straight and third in four games by a wide margin, 72-33. They were making off every trip. You know that. That's a ball game right there, Shaw said. And we couldn't get the ball into the hoop at all, and turnovers kind of hurt us. Abraham Lincoln was scheduled to face two more stiff tests against Sioux City East and Bishop Heelan last week. But the winter storm forced both the original games and even the rescheduled ones to be pushed back. The Lynx will now play at the Knights on January 22nd and host the Crusaders on February 9th, six days after going to Heelan. On Tuesday, Shaw's Bunch faced 5A number 15 Sioux City West. The Wolverines previously defeated the Lynx early in the season. The Lynx fell 68-61 to to drop to 500. American, or <laughs> Abraham Lincoln started the season with wins in five of their first seven games, but lost back-to-back games to opposition from across the Missouri River in losses to Omaha Central and Bellevue West. After a week off, the loss to the Wolverines extended the losing streak to three straight games. The Lynx have been led by the trio of Addie Naughton, Hudson Rowell, and Presley Gers, each of whom are in the top three on the team in points, assists, and rebounds. Abraham Lincoln goes to Sergeant Bluff Luton on Friday at 5.30 p.m. Iowa 86, Minnesota 77. McCaffrey now the winningest coach in program history. Dix has another career night and third start as playing time increases. Josh Dix, who got the start in place of injured Patrick McCaffrey, scored 21 points as Iowa beat Minnesota 86-77 on Monday night to make Fran McCaffrey the winningest coach in program history. Fran McCaffrey, who is in his 28th season as a head coach and 14th at Iowa, won his 272nd game as a Hawkeye, passing the Dr. Tom Davis for the most victories in the program history. On January 6th, McCaffrey won his 127th game, uh, 127th career Big Ten game, to move past Davis for the most league victories. Dick scored eight straight Iowa points capped by a pull-up jumper with 7.07 left for a 67-56 lead. Minnesota, Minnesota got as close as five points from there, but Owen Freeman's dunk and subsequent free throw pushed Iowa's advantage to 78-67 with a minute 27 remaining. One game after setting career highs in minutes, points, field goals made and attempted, and three-point field goals made and attempted, Dix got his third career start in place of Patrick McCaffrey, who did not play due to an ankle injury. In 32 minutes of action, Dix set or tied career highs in points, 21, field goals made 7, and attempted 12, free throws made 5, assists 5, and steals 2. No season comes without some adversity, you know what I mean, said Jason Isaacson, head coach at Council Bless Abraham Lincoln, where Dick starred for the Lynx. And that's kind of what I thought. He's been battling the first half of the season, was a little inconsistent play, inconsistent playing time, but we all believed in him. We all know that he's capable of, so it's really it's been really awesome to see him play the last few games, like coming out of his shell. 
Ben Cricky led the Hawkeyes with 25 points. Tony Perkins added 13 points, and Freeman had 12 points and 8 rebounds for Iowa. Dawson Garcia scored 30 points for Minnesota. Joshua Ola Joseph added 15 points, and Cam Christie scored 12. Iowa won its third straight game in Minneapolis for the first time since 1954-1956. Former Iowa star Luke Garza, the National Player of the League in 2021, sat behind the Hawkeye bench. Garza is now a member of the Minnesota Timberwolves, is a a school men's leader in scoring at 2,306 points. Caitlin Clark became Iowa's all-time career-leading scorer on Sunday with 2,813 points. Iowa returns home to play number 2 Purdue on Saturday. Minnesota goes on the road to play Michigan State on Thursday. Okay, here's a story about uh, Green Bay Packers and San Francisco 49ers. Playoff rivalry has produced memorable moments. Kyle Jusic remembers a different feel when he took the field for the first time in the playoff rivalry between the San Francisco 49ers and the Green Bay Packers. The two storied franchises with rich traditions that produced big stars facing off against each other on the playoff stage. The teams are set to meet for the third time in the past five postseasons on Saturday night when the Packers, 10-8, Visit the 49ers, who are 12-5, and five, in the divisional round. It's always fun, Jazik said. Green Bay's just such a storied franchise. The rivalry of San Francisco and Green Bay is always a big one. Honestly, one of my best memories as a Niner was that NFC Championship game here against the Packers and just in warm-ups, just feeling and the energy. It was nothing I had ever felt here before. It was such an exciting time, and hopefully we feel that again this week. The Niners won that 2020 matchup 37-20 to to go to the Super Bowl, and then repeated the two years later when they upset the Green Bay Packers in Green Bay 13-10. to Few franchises have been as intertwined over the last three decades as the Packers and 49ers, with coaches getting groomed in one spot and ending up in the other. Eight previous playoff meetings and the draft decision that sent Aaron Rodgers packing for Green Bay instead of staying close to home and reviving the 49ers. The teams that have combined for nine Super Bowl titles will meet with a spot in the NFC Championship game on the line. This will be the record-setting 10th playoff meeting between the franchises. All of those games have come in the last 29 seasons with no other teams meeting more than five times in the postseason in that span. Caitlin Clark moves up career scoring list as number two Iowa defeats Wisconsin, 96-50. Caitlin Clark scored 32 points, moving into fourth place on the all-time NCAA Division I women's basketball scoring list to help number two Iowa beat Wisconsin 96-50 on Tuesday night. Clark now has 3,306 career points and passed Baylor's Brittany Griner, 3,283 points on the all-time list 
with the first of two free throws with 7.02 left in the first half. It's kind of full circle, said Clark, who recalled seeing Griner and Baylor play in the NCAA Tournament Regional Final in 2012 in Des Moines, close to Clark's hometown of West Des Moines. I was still pretty young, said Clark. I think that was Tennessee coaches Pat Summit's last game. I do remember that. That's like my core memory of Brittany Griner, just to be in the same vicinity of some of those names is super special. It's cool. They're people I grew up watching, so it's special. It's pretty impressive, said Iowa coach Lisa Bluter. Clark said she has learned to appreciate the historic moments that are growing in her career. It's hard for me to wrap my head around all of it, she said. I'm just trying to stay in the moment, enjoy every single second of it. Clark keeps adding up the points, but her shoe stock is dwindling. She gave the shoes she wore in the game to a young girl wearing a Clark jersey. Usually they don't say much because they're in shock, said Clark, who smiled as she slid across the court in her socks after giving the shoes away. It was cute. She was copying our stretching when we were warming up. I thought it was cute. Clark, the nation's leading scorer at 30.9 points per game, missed her first four shots and didn't have a field goal in the first nine minutes of the game. But she finished 8 of 18 from the field, 16 or 6 of 14 in three-pointers. Kate Martin had 16 points and Sidney Falter had 12 for the Hawkeyes who extended their winning streak to 15 games. I thought Sid worked so hard again, Bluter said. And Kate Martin continues to play like a pro. She's really playing well. Wisconsin was within 21-17 in the second quarter before the Hawkeyes went on a 13-0 run. The Badgers fought back to within 40-28 late in the quarter, but Martin and Clark hit back-to-back three-pointers in a 34-second stretch in the final two minutes of the quarter as Iowa led 46-30 to at halftime. I think they kind of uh, put their foot on the gas a little bit, Wisconsin coach Marissa Mosley said. And I think for our kids, we took a step back at that point. The Hawkeyes, who had 25 assists on 29 field goals, made 15 three-pointers. Obviously, they're a well-oiled machine, Mosley said, so they know where each other it's going to be at what time. I think for us, we're a much younger team and much more inexperienced team, and I think you saw the difference in that, especially once the second half. Sari Williams had 19 points and 14 rebounds to lead the Badgers. Iowa swept the season series with the Badgers and has a 29-game winning streak in all-time series. In a high school uh, story, collective Glenwood performance leads to route of St. Albert's. Ten Rams find score sheet in 75-46 to win after 11-day delay. After 10 days without a game due to turbulent weather, St. Albert and Glenwood return to the court for a Hawkeye 10 matchup Tuesday night. The Falcons came in looking to break a recent skid with four losses in five games, while the Rams entered with a two-game winning streak in the new year. Glenwood used a collective effort to earn a 75-46 to win. I thought for the most part we did some good things, but there's a lot of things we need to work on, Rams head coach Kurt Schulte said. It wasn't always pretty at times, 
but we need to take care of the ball a lot better. I thought we did a better job of that in the second half. So, you know, we just need to cherish possessions and so forth. But defensively, I thought we were pretty good. We out-rebounded them by, I think, roughly eight unofficially, so a lot of good things. In the extended time off, the Rams were in a state of uncertainty. We were preparing, and then it got called off. We'd prepare for the next opponent. It would get called off, Schulte said. So it was a deal where we couldn't really get great continuity. So, you know, it is what it is. We can't control the weather. Hopefully we can get things going here and the weather is good. In the first half, all nine Rams take the floor, found the scoreboard. Punctuated by a corner three by Huskers baseball commit, Caden Anderson to push Glenwood to a 38-20 halftime lead. Anyone who can score 20 points on this team, said sophomore Jack Johnson, who led the Rams with 15 points off the bench in the win. It just depends on who on the night, and tonight was my night. Each of the Rams' five starters combined for 25 points, and the Rams' defensive effort helped the Falcons to 7 of 21 shooting in the first half. Johnson credited the team's tempo as a catalyst for the variety of scoring options. Our tempo was really good. We played really fast today, and that's kind of my thing, Johnson said. They play well together. They believe in each other, Schulte said. We feel that there isn't a big drop-off from our eight, nine guys, and we feel comfortable, and they play as a family. Once Glenwood stretched the lead to double digits on a three-pointer early in the second quarter, St. Alberts was unable to get back within single digits the rest of the way. The Rams extended the advantage to 26 by the end of the third quarter and came away with their third straight win while the Falcons dropped their fifth in sixth games. And here's a little uh, bit about the Iowa legislature. Reynolds proposes regent funding far below requests. Instead of the nearly $40 million appropriations increase Iowa Board of Regents wanted, the legislature to approve for the next budget year, Governor Kim Reynolds has recommended a $12.3 million bump, amounting to a 2.5 increase for each of the Iowa's public universities. In making that recommendation as part of her fiscal 2025 budget proposal released last week, Reynolds rejected several specific Regent University requests on top of the general education appropriations asks including a University of Iowa request for $10 million for a new rural health care partnership to address workforce challenges and the needs of an aging population, and $500,000 more for a much-needed technology upgrades at the State Hygienic Lab. Iowa State University's request for an additional $10 million for a STEM workforce initiative aimed at supporting economic development for state's manufacturing, industry, and degree programs, producing workers for in-demand jobs. Two, additional University of Northern Iowa requests, one for 500000 to sustain its community college partnerships, and a second for $2.5 million to continue its Educators for Iowa initiative aimed at recruiting more students into the teaching positions.
Reynolds' proposal also excluded any funding toward a $1 million request for expanded mental health services on campus as student leaders implored regions to add to their legislative request for funding. Students on our campuses are in significant need of increased accessibility and options for mental health and well-being, according to a letter the UNI, ISU, and UNI student governments sent to the regions in September. Increased funding is necessary to better expand counseling services to students, lower waiting times to meet with mental health professionals, and broaden options for support to better students' academic and personal needs. When asked about the governor's governor's recommendations, Regents spokesman Josh Lehman said the board thanks Governor Reynolds for her support for Iowa's Regent Universities as demonstrated by her fiscal 2025 budget recommendation. The board appreciates the continuing state appropriations our institutions receive. Iowa's public universities are key drivers of the state's economy and must have proper levels of resources to continue to provide the outstanding education our students deserve. By taking Reynolds' suggestion to increase state support for the university's general education budgets by 2.5%, ignoring the other campus special requests, the legislature would increase its total regents' appropriations from $569 million this year to $582 million. The legislature also could do something entirely different, as it did last year, when it denied the universities any general education increase and instead tied its entire 7.1 million regions bump to specific programs across the campuses. In Reynolds' $12.3 million appropriations increase proposal for fiscal 2025, which starts in July, C suggested giving each campus a 2.5% general education bump meaning the University of Iowa would get the most at $5.5 million, followed by $4.4 million for ISU and $2.5 million for UNI. The regions had sought $4.8 million more in general education support, with both the University of Iowa and Iowa State University getting $4.5 million increases and UNI getting a $5.8 million hike. The UNI increase would have allowed it to keep tuition flat next year. Differentiating tuition and mandatory fees will help the university ensure costs align with the needs of our students and the state while remaining a reasonable investment for taxpayers, according to its appropriations request. In order to be competitive in recruiting students, UNI must continue its effort to realign the sticker price and net cost of tuition and mandatory fees relative to the state's public research universities. ISU and the University of Iowa argued for their respective increases by referencing inflation, demand for competitive salaries, and the need for online programs bringing courses to place-bound students across the state. In making a case for an extra $10 million next year toward a rural health care initiative, University of Iowa officials suggested the state actually commit $50 million over five years to build a dynamic and sustainable partnership that will provide increased access and improved health outcomes for Iowans. 
At $10 million a year, first and second year funds would go toward building a healthcare workforce pipeline. Years three and four would focus on developing and deploying telehealth opportunities to rural communities. And years four and five would continue efforts to recruit and retain workers. UNI's ask for $2.5 million more for its Educators for Iowa program targeted a similar concern around training workers for critical jobs. There is a growing teacher shortage in the state and across the nation, according to UNI's request, citing the state's $1.5 million allocation for the same program last year. UNI was able to initiate a number of scholarships to recruit and retain teachers and meet Iowa's critical education shortage. For fiscal year 2025, UNI requests an additional $2.5 million to continue efforts to recruit more students into the teaching profession. The campus also wanted state support for the first time for a community college partnership it launched last year with $4.2 million in one-time Federal American Rescue Plan program funding. State funding would allow us to continue providing scholarships to the UNI at IACC students in the spring of 2025 semester after the federal funding is no longer available. When asked about the governor's recommended denial of those special requests, board spokesman Lehman said, the board and our universities will continue to work with the governor and general assembly during the legislation sessions. This brings us uh, to an end of the reading of the Council Bluffs Nonpareil. I'm your reader, John McPartland. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. Shortly after modern humans arrived in Europe, the Neanderthals disappeared, and scientists think we had something to do with it. Neanderthals, or their direct ancestors, migrated out of Africa and into the Middle East and Europe around 250,000 years ago. Soon, they were well adapted to the environment. Large eyes helped them see in the longer nights and darker winters. Stout bodies helped them retain heat and handle large prey, and provided space for the large liver and kidneys needed for a diet heavy in protein. Their brains were as big as ours, but spent processing power on their greater visual and motor abilities. This may not have allowed them to develop higher communication or conceptual thinking to match ours, which may have been their downfall. Modern humans arrived on the scene 45,000 years ago, less physically adapted, but more mentally adaptable. We had cooperative hunting methods superior to the Neanderthals, allowing us to outcompete them for food, and perhaps reducing the large herbivore populations that they depended on. We also had superior tools and weapons. When there were conflicts between the groups, as there have been among tribes throughout history, our superior technology probably allowed us to prevail. But we weren't only fighting. There must have been considerable interbreeding, since we can find 1-3% to of the Neanderthal genome in modern man. Which means the Neanderthals never completely disappeared. A little bit of them is alive in us today. I'm Scott Tinker. EarthDate is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.